Good morning. The news the last couple of weeks um, has been a real downer, hasn't it? And it's not just the school shootings, but that would be enough in our own state, in Colorado, and then the horrific events in that Amish schoolhouse. And you couple that with the disappointments we continue to have with our political leaders and their scandals, the everyday reports of another suicide bombing in the Middle East, in Iraq, genocide still at work in the continent of Africa, and it makes me think that the story of the Bible is exactly right. And we aren't living in the very good beginning, are we? Where God's people, Adam and Eve, were living in God's place, the Garden of Eden. And everything was right with God and with each other in creation. They were living under his rule. They were experiencing his blessing. Now, that's not the world we live in. We, we live in that world that breaks out at Genesis 3. When Adam and Eve rebelled. And their sin brought death, and death brought judgment. Judgment was separation from God physically, physical separation, and it was spiritual separation. And yet even there, in in the dark beginnings of the middle of the story, so to speak, there's that, that light of day, that first light, that glimmer of hope, when God makes his promise to Adam and Eve that one of Eve's descendants would one day crush the serpent's head. And then those promises we saw a couple weeks ago move forward through this man named Abraham. This guy was an idolater from Ur the Chaldeans. And God says through his promises to Abraham, I'm going to reverse the effects of the fall, of the curse. So I'm going to make through you a new people. And it's going to be as numerous as the stars in the heaven, Abraham. And I'm going to move you into a new land, the promised land. And I'm going to bless you as you live under my rule. And I'm going to bless all the families of the world through you. So last week, we we saw how Abraham's descendants that moved into Egypt as a small clan of 70, Jacob's family, now are walking out of Egypt some two million strong. They're moving from Egypt to Mount Sinai, God's mountain. And it's there at Sinai that God says again in his intent, I've rescued you for a relationship. I want to be your God. And I want you to be my chosen people. And they say, we're on, God. We acknowledge you as king, as ruler, as God. And we want to live under your rule. We want to live under your rules. And before Moses gets off the mountain with the Ten Commandments, they've already broken the first two. They're lawbreakers. And, and then we ended up last week talking about this tabernacle. It's pretty amazing that the last 16 chapters of the book of Exodus and all of the book of Leviticus has to do with this place, this tent, this portable tent where God's presence dwelt with the priests and the sacrifices. And it's all telling us and reminding us that that's how a holy God lives with people who aren't holy. People who say they want to do God's will. They want to follow his ways and his word, but they don't. They're lawbreakers. They're sinners. 
How does God live with those people? He lives with them in a tabernacle, that special place where sacrifices and offerings were made on behalf of sinful people by the priests before a holy God. And so today, we're going to, we're going to pick up the pace. And what is this, week five, I think? We've got, we got a little ways to go here to get cover to cover. So we're going to pick up the pace a little bit, the speed of sound as we go. Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and Joshua. All right, that's where we're going. And where we're going historically is we're following God's people from the mountain, Mount Sinai, where he gives them the law, all the way into the promised land. All right? So we begin with the book of Leviticus. When you think of that word Leviticus, you can see the word Levite right in it. So the word literally means pertaining to the Levites. Leviticus is all about the priests and their offerings and their sacrifices. And when you think about the book of Leviticus, with its description of the tabernacle, of the priests, his garments, the sacrifices, the offerings, the feasts, all of that, you think about this, that God is holy and we are to be holy. So when you want to just think about what's Leviticus about, it's teaching us that God's holy and I'm to be holy. So be holy is what I think of when I think of Leviticus. So uh, say it with me. What do we think of when we think of Leviticus? Be holy. Be holy. Well, what does that mean? I mean, when someone says, holy cow, what are they saying about that cow anyways? What in the world is a holy cow? I have no idea. But I can tell you what the Bible means about holy. It, it has to do with God being set apart, that he's completely different that he's totally other, and he's calling us to be his holy people. So in Leviticus 11.44, God says, here's why it's important to be holy, because I'm holy. So we read in Leviticus 11.44, I am the Lord your God. Consecrate yourselves and be holy, because I'm holy. God says, And I've called you to be my holy people. Remember, we're created in his image. And we remember that Abraham's people were not just to receive blessing, but to dole out the blessing so that all the families in the world would be blessed through Abraham. So in Exodus 19, God says to his people, I want you to be a royal priesthood and a holy nation. Or as Peter says of the church in 1 Peter 2, 9 and 10, you're a chosen people a royal priesthood, a holy nation set apart to declare God's praises. So God says, that's why I want you to be holy, because I'm holy and you're my representatives here on earth. And because I've got holy work for you to do, important purposes, you're going to join me in my rescue mission of calling people to myself. And the way you're going to do that and be used by me is by being set apart, by being holy. And so that reminds us that when we are most like the world that we're called to reach, we're least likely to reach that world. The more we're like the world, the less likely we can reach the world for God's saving purposes. So holiness is important because of who God is, because we are his people and he's given us work to do. But we know from Leviticus and throughout of biblical history from Genesis 3 
that God's people are not perfectly holy. And that's why there's all kinds of information about sacrifices and offerings and all things pertaining to the priests. Those sacrifices deal with our sin. It reminds us that sin deserves death and that God has provided a substitute for the punishment that we deserve. And it reminds us that sinners need a go-between. We, we, we need a priest who will mediate between us and a holy God. And that's what the priests would do on behalf of God's people before their holy God. And I don't think there's another book like the book of Leviticus in the entire Old Testament that points more directly towards Christ from beginning to end. But let's be honest. Anybody here ever do the one-year Bible? I mean, January 1, okay. I'm going to read the Bible cover to cover, right? And you got to Leviticus, and what happened? Man, the wheels started coming off. I mean, I've never heard of so many clean and unclean animals in my life. And all these offerings and sacrifices and all the details of the tabernacle and the priest garments and how they were supposed to do all these things. I mean, whoa, dog, I'm discouraged, Lord. What is this about? It's about Jesus. Leviticus, like no other book in the Old Testament, is about Jesus. Remember the tabernacle. The tabernacle is God's dwelling place. God lives in this place. And he lives there because of sacrifices offered by priests. Jesus Christ, John tells us, tabernacled here on this earth. And Paul says in Colossians 1.19 that all the fullness of God dwells in him. It rests in him. So when Jesus walked this earth, God's presence was right here, tabernacling through his son, Jesus Christ, who was a high priest and came as a high priest, not to bring an offering, but to become an offering. I mean, that's the amazing thing about who Jesus is and what he did. So that Hebrews 9 would say this in verses 11 and 12. When Christ came as high priest of the good things that are already here, he did not enter by means of the blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood, having obtained eternal redemption. So Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many people. He was the priest. He is the tabernacle. He became the perfect once-for-all sacrifice. So Leviticus reminds us that what? We're to be holy because God's holy and we're his people and he wants to use us to reach the world so that all the families of the world will be blessed. We're part of that. That takes us to Numbers. Numbers is called Numbers because there's a couple of censuses taken. The people are numbered. They're counted. Just like we have a census. It happens at the beginning of the book and it happens at the end of the book. But Numbers isn't fundamentally about numbering the people. It's fundamentally about God's goodness and the importance to be grateful. So God is holy in Leviticus and our response is to be holy. God is good and he shows his goodness in so many tangible ways. And the response is to be grateful. God's goodness elicits gratitude. Now, the problem was 
that as God's people in the book of Numbers starts to move out. So they've been at Mount Sinai for almost a year, just short of a year. And all of a sudden, remember how God would lead them through the cloud and the pillar of fire at night. All of a sudden, the cloud lifts and starts to move. And the text tells us the trumpet sounded. Hey, folks, we're going to the promised land. All of God's promises are being fulfilled except for that one. They're not yet in the promised land. So there is excitement in the camp as they start to go. They're not yet three days journey from Mount Sinai when they get into their rut, mumbling and grumbling. We don't like it very much. The food stinks, God. We don't think the leaders are that great either. Mumbling and grumbling. In fact, Numbers 14.22 tells us that 10 times God's children test him from the point they leave Egypt through the book of Numbers, wandering in the wilderness, each time testing him by grumbling and complaining. And it, it is the voice of unbelief. The New Testament will describe this, this response of God's people as being unbelief and unbelieving people. It's the voice of unbelief. Wow, that has just been hitting me between the eyes this week. Because you know what? I find myself a lot of times like the children of Israel. I mean, God's given them daily provision. Sometimes, well, not sometimes. His daily provision was miraculous every day. Manna coming down from heaven. And they were grumbling and complaining. And really important to make the connection that the text is making, that that grumbling and complaining is fundamentally unbelief. And the scriptures say sin is unbelief. And the sin and the unbelief is that I don't believe that God is good anymore. And I don't think his provisions are good that he's given me today. And I think his future promises stink too. I don't think they're good. And that's what we run into time after time with God's people here in the wilderness. So in chapter 11, they're grumbling about hardship. So we read in verse 1, Now the people complained about their hardships in the hearing of the Lord. And when he heard them, his anger was aroused. Get used to it. God does not like it when his children grumble and complain. He has a very severe response to it all. His anger is aroused. Then fire, oh my word, fire from the Lord burned among them and consumed some of the outskirts of the camp. In other words, some of them died when fire from heaven fell and literally consumed them. Oh man, they're grumbling about all kinds of things as I just mentioned. They're grumbling about the hardships here in verses 1 through 3. In 11, verse 4 through 6, they're grumbling about food. It reminds me of Bethel College. We had the, the beef board. It was the, the place where students could kind of write out their grumblings and their mumblings. What, do you don't, what don't you like, students? Just write it up there. Put it on the beef board. You know what 99.9% of the beef board was about? The beef, the food. I mean, everybody hated the cafeteria food, and that's what that whole board was plastered with, grumblings and mumblings of students over the food. Of course, I've never done that. (laughs) Listen to what they say in verses 4 through 6. The rabble, I love that word, the rabble with them began to crave other food. And again, the Israelites started wailing and said, if only we had meat to eat. We remember the fish we ate in Egypt at no cost. Also the cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, and oh, the garlic. But now we have lost our appetite. We never see anything but this manna. 
And Moses, we're sick of manna. We're sick of it. We're sick of God's daily, miraculous provision. Chapter 12. They're grumbling over leadership. Moses' own brother and sister say, what? You think you're the only person God speaks to? God says, face to face, he's the only one. He's the only one. Chapter 16. Korah leads a rebellion. This one's an attack on Aaron. Hey, aren't all God's people holy? Why do we need a priest? Why, why, why all this special stuff for you, Aaron? We're all holy here. Murmurings and complainings about leadership. Then there's that whole episode that happens in chapters 13 and 14 where the 10 spy, 12 spies come back from spying out after 40 days the promised land and they bring back a report. And there's two reports. This is a good lesson. The majority report was wrong. That's a good lesson. They were dead wrong. They came back and said, yep, Moses, it is flowing with milk and honey. Man, look at the grapes. They brought back the big cluster of grapes. Huge. They've never seen produce like that before. But that place is not a place we want to go into. I mean, those dudes are big in the promised land. Those Canaanite guys, they're like the Anakim, the Rephilim. They're monsters. They're giants. And they'll devour us in anything that's in the land. Not only are they huge, but they live in these huge walled cities. We don't have a chance. When that report got out to the people, they were so discouraged and disheartened that they said, man, it'd be better that we were back in Egypt than we died there. It would be better if we die right here in the desert than go over there and see our wives and our kids mutilated by these barbarians. And they grumbled and complained. And they said, let's, let's choose new leaders. We're going back to Egypt. And the text tells us they picked up stones to stone Moses and Aaron. But there was a minority report. These guys got it right. They were in the same place, saw the same things. They said, Moses, it is a land flowing with milk and honey. And yep, there's some big dudes there, and they live in some pretty big, big cities. But we believe we've got a big God. And if he's telling us that he's going to give us that land, we believe him, and we think we ought to go. The minority report wasn't received by God's people. They wanted to stone them too. And what you see here is, boy, it's important where we have our eyes. Those 10 had their eyes on the wrong thing, on everything but God. And those two had their eyes on the right thing. They had their eyes on God. So they didn't fall into the grasshopper syndrome. They understood that God was a big God. And as we sang, and because of that, all things are possible. And if he said he's given us the land, we believe it. We're going to take him at his word. Well, the response to unbelief, to grumbling and complaining is severe. We saw the fire break out in chapter 11 as they complain over hardship. The, uh, the food in 4 through 6, God gives them quail. You don't like manna? Well, I'll give you quail. I'll give you so much quail that you're going to be sick of quail. In fact, I'm going to give you a plague through the quail. And before the meat was out of their teeth, the text says, many have died. God's hand of judgment. Miriam gets leprosy for leading the rebellion against her brother. Korah 
You read the account of chapter 16. This is scary stuff. This is out of a Steven Spielberg movie where the earth just opens up and Kor and his 250 followers and their households are just, they're just swallowed up as the earth opens up and they're gone. And what happens to this band of Israelites and the 10 spies? Well, the 10 spies that day are struck down by a plague. They're gone. And God puts a sentence on his people, everybody that's 20 years and over, and he says this, look, you said it'd be better that you die in the wilderness. I'm going to give you your wish. That's what's going to happen. You are going to spend the next 40 years, one year for every day the scouts were out scouting the promised land. You're going to wander in this wilderness, and at the end of 40 days, every one of your generation, 20 and up, except for Joshua and Caleb, is going to be buried here in the desert sands. None of you will enter the promised land. Their unbelief barred them from the promised land. The promised land, as you pick up the metaphor and the teaching in the New Testament, is heaven. That's what it is. And the teaching is simple. Unbelief bars one from the promised land, from God's presence, from heaven. And God gives us what we want. We say, God, I want to do life without you here. I don't need you. God says, I'll let you do life without me forever. That's hell. Eternally separated from God. God deals severely with his grumbling people. And the wake-up call to me was the severity of his response. It seems disproportionate. I mean, they're just complaining. I can relate to that. You know, I'm not always positive. I try to be. They're just complaining. But boy, you start to connect the dots and you realize what's going on. They weren't just complaining. And they weren't just complaining to Moses and Aaron. Fundamentally, God says, they were complaining about him. And what they were doing was they're saying, God, your provisions today, they're not good. You're not good. And your future promises aren't good either. They're just going to kill us when we go into this so-called promised land. It's an affront to God's character, hence his severe response to it. Severe response. And so I, I just think about my own life and my need to not just be a positive person, but realize at the heart of their mumbling and grumbling was unbelief. They really didn't believe God was good. And that is such a precarious place to live because that was the place where Satan, the serpent, started with Adam and Eve. Because he knew if he could undermine their confidence in God's goodness, the rest would be easy. If God's not fundamentally good, well, then his word's not good and his rule's not good, so chuck that. The rest is easy. Well, the New Testament helps us apply this important teaching. There's two places. The first is in 1 Corinthians 10. And in 1 Corinthians 10, verses 11 through 13, we read this. These things happened to them as examples and were written down as warnings for us on whom the fulfillment of the ages has come. And he has spent the whole first part of chapter 10 talking about the Israelites in the wilderness. In fact, in my Bible, the title there is Warnings from Israel's History. And the history it's warning us about is when they were wandering in the desert. Okay? 
So he says, these things happen to them as examples and as warnings for us on whom the fulfillment of the ages has come, Christ. So if you think you're standing firm, be careful you don't fall. If you think that this, this could never happen to me, take heed lest you fall. Verse 13, no temptation, here's great promises, no temptation has seized you except what is common to man. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can stand up under it. And so the New Testament interprets the wilderness and says, look, these things are recorded for you because you're going to go through hardship. You're going to go through testing. You're going to be tempted. And be warned by the lessons of what happened back there in the wilderness. What did they do? You go back in chapter 10, verse 6, and we read, These things occurred as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. And the evil things, he goes on to say in verse 7 and 8, are idolatry and immorality. And so this, this text warns us, and it says, Don't set your heart on evil things. Set your heart on the good purposes of God, on his word. The teaching says, don't ever look at God's people and say, well, man, I'm above that. I'm not a grumbler, complainer. I would never do, I would never question God's goodness. Take heed, lest you stumble. It's what it's teaching us. It's what it's warning us. And then it's, it's warning us of, um, don't test God by grumbling or complaining. And, and I love the promises there in verse 13. So helpful for us today. Three promises from 13. Number one, don't ever say when you get tempted, you know what? This is so hard. I think I'm the first person ever that's had to deal with this. And, and God will give me a little extra. Hey, 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 hey. It's common to man. There, there's nothing that you're dealing with that somebody in the past or right here in this room hasn't dealt with. But it gets better. The second promise is, hey, remember that God promises that he'll never let us be tempted by something that's too big for us so that we say, God, this is impossible. This is an impossible test. You know I can't resist this temptation. God says, absolutely not true. I will make sure that I'll never put that scenario into your life. And the reason you can know that is because every time that you walk into this room and you're confronted with temptation, you will not find yourself in this room that has no doors. It'll always have a way out. There will always be a flashing sign that says, exit, get out. I will always provide a way of escape. And so I think there's some questions that we want to ask ourselves from the text. The first is, what's your heart like? What's it set on? Is it set on the pleasures of the world or on the purposes of God? Are are you tempted in hardship to go back to the comforts of the world, the leeks and the melons and the fish and the garlic of Egypt? Or are you going to trust in God's future promises when today doesn't seem that good? What's your heart set on? How is your heart? Here's a second question. What's your tone of voice? You remember your parents saying to you, I don't like the tone of your voice. It was a a, a tone of voice that was obviously communicating disrespect. What's your tone of voice? Is it grumbling or is it grateful? 
And do you realize that all your grumbling and complaining over the little things of life are really directed to God? Are you a thankful person? Here's an exercise I, I would really encourage you to take on. I've done it at times in my life, but this, this message and what God's teaching me has made it clear that I, I need to do this all the time. When Lori went through cancer, every day I would write down three things that we were thankful for, three graces that God gave us that day. There is never a day where I didn't have at least three things to write down. And here's what I would encourage you. At the end of today, write down three things you're thankful for and have them, have them um, moving in the, the past, the present, and the future. So thank God for something he's done in the past for you or for his people. And then go to the present and say, God, I'm thinking about today, and I want to thank you about something that happened this day. And then I'm going to go out in the future, and, and I'm going to be thanking God for something he's promised in the future. Oh, I think that would be very, very helpful for us as we cultivate gratitude, keep focusing and looking for God's goodness, his goodness. Third question, how's your eyesight? Can you see the exits? More important, how's your reflex? What's your reflex like when temptation comes? Is it, is it one of those things where you go, I'm getting out of here, like Joseph? Is it that kind of reflex? Or is it like, huh, this is interesting. Let's see what happens here. Let's see how close we can get to the edge. Do you see the exit sign? More importantly, are you running for it? A fourth question. Are you in community, in relationships? Now that doesn't come from 1 Corinthians 10, but it comes from Hebrews 3. See, we need to be in relationships where we are encouraging people to go and walk and live with God and where people are encouraging us to do the same. So Hebrews chapter 3 is another one of those New Testament passages that's talking all about God's people in the wilderness and it's saying, hey, this is what you need. You need relationships where you are being encouraged and encouraging one another in the Lord. So in verse 12 of chapter 3, it says, See to it, brothers, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart. This is the text that opened my eyes and made the connections to the grumblings that was going on in this time of period that he refers to in verses 7 through 11 to say, wow, that's not just about a bad attitude. It's about a bad heart. It's about unbelief. See to it that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. But, and here it is, encourage one another. That word means to, to, um, to urge, to exhort, to summon, to call up each other. And it's a, it's a strong command. Encourage one another. How often? Daily. As long as it's called today. So that why? So that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. What were Don and Sarah talking about this morning? About their small group about the relationships that God had given them. That's why it's not enough to be part of this community right here because you could be here worshiping with us every weekend, but not in relationship. God says, I made you for relationship with me and you desperately need relationships with each other where you can encourage and be encouraged. And boy, there's a whole host of ways you can do that here at Door Creek, and we need to take advantage of that. 
We need that because when we don't have that, we'll lose our way. I, I need Lori to tell me and give me a good kick in the seat like, hey, that's a bad attitude. You are being negative. Because I can't see myself like Lori can. So we need each other. We are our brothers and sisters' keeper. Cain was dead wrong when he asked God that question. Are you in community? Well, we've got to hurry on because we've got Deuteronomy and Joshua. We'll do those quick. Deuteronomy, it comes from the word that means second law. And God is giving us a merciful second chance. God is merciful, choose life. In the book of Deuteronomy, the generation all dies, 20 and over. They're poised now to enter the promised land, but he's got to rearticulate the promises he made to God's people. These, these, this generation, they were young. The oldest of them were 20 at the time, and the youngest of them were kids. And God now rearticulates the covenant. I want to be your God. You are to be my people, and these are the terms. You keep my word, and when you do, there will be blessing, but if you disobey, there will be curse. And so... Moses says at the end of his life, his final sermon to his people, choose life. Today I've laid before you the blessings and the curse, but I want you to choose life. Moses dies on Mount Nebo. His successor, Joshua, whose name means God is salvation. It's the Hebrew equivalent to Jesus. Isn't that amazing? Joshua is the same word for Jesus, God is salvation. Yahweh is salvation. God delivers. And Joshua brings us to the point where we see the fulfillment of all of God's promises. So that not one of the promises he made to God's people are not fulfilled. God's people are in God's place. They're living under God's rule and they're enjoying his blessing. It's the reverse of the fall. It's Eden now recreated in the promised land. And at the end of Joshua's life, he says to the people, look, you're going to continually every day have to choose who you're going to serve. You're either going to serve those idols that you grew up with and worship back in Egypt. You're either going to worship the gods that are all around you in our land today, or you are going to serve and worship God alone. For me and my house... 24, 15, Joshua says, we're serving God. And God's people say, well, hey, 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 we're, we're on for that too. We're, we're signing up. We want to do that. And the sad response from Joshua is, you won't. You won't do it. You say you're going to do it, but you're not going to do it. Because they may have had a change of scenery, but they need and we need desperately a change of heart. I hope you want to get better. I hope you know that you need to get better. And I hope you know that God's the one that can change our hearts from being a heart that's set on evil desires to being a heart that's set apart where we're actually holy, reflecting his character, pursuing his work. That we can be people who who aren't so consumed with ourselves and all the inconveniences of God's gracious provision, but our eyes are so on God that we're people that are overflowing with gratefulness. You know how wonderful it is to be around that kind of a person? It's full of thanks instead of complaining about everything. 
He can change our hearts from being a person who, who doesn't choose life, who continues to choose the wrong things that bring bad things in our life. And he can change a rebel into a worshiper. God can do that. He, he can move us from being a person who just lives to serve ourselves to say, hey, God, I want to serve you with all that I am. So in the quietness of these next moments, I, I want you to just reflect on your heart. I want you to talk to God. And I want you to ask him to change your heart. So let's just quiet our, our hearts right now and do business with our merciful God. Let's pray.